Amen, and please be seated. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This morning, we return to our study in this letter. It's, it's been a while. It's been since uh, before Thanksgiving. We took a break for Advent and Christmas. One of the things that we've said is, you know, why do we have a book like this? Scripture has actually given us two books uh, written to Timothy and one to Titus. So three that are called pastoral epistles. They are meant to help us evaluate and reevaluate, uh, prioritize and reprioritize ministry shaped by the gospel. They're invited for us to reflect on the path that we're going as a people, even as a pastor. Uh, Paul here, of course, is in prison. He's about to be executed. Peter, likewise, will die. And uh, so what's going to happen in the church is that the apostles are leaving. What will happen to the church without their uh, direct influence and teaching, their advice and their letter writing? Well, the ministry has to be passed off from uh, the apostles to that first generation of non-apostles to missionaries and pastors and elders and men like Timothy. And so what we've seen so far in this letter, well, in chapter 2 anyway, uh, as he turned a corner there, uh, we saw that Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you need to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. And then at verse 2, he said to him, Timothy, you need to recruit future teachers and elders, what you've heard from me, verse 2, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Timothy's supposed to, by the grace of God strengthening him, go about this work. What should then this ministry of Christian teachers look like? And we have a, a room full of teachers. I'm not the only teacher here at Redeemer. Uh, we have a room full of folks who teach Sunday school and otherwise, occasionally preach here. We've got a room full of parents who are to teach their children, grandparents who can jump in likewise, and Christians who are to speak the truth in love to one another, teaching what is good for building one another up. And so this ministry this morning from this word, I believe, is really for all of us. Let me invite you to hear it from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be our teacher, that by your spirit you would take this word and drive it home to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Paul writes to Timothy about uh, how to pastor uh, in relationship to the flock, and also how, how to think of himself, how to pastor himself here. Uh, Charles Spurgeon 
said to his students, if you do not spend time in diligent study, our congregations will get poverty-stricken sermons. And like in his day, so in our day, the church is in need of pastors who will study. The church is in need of teachers who will dig into the Word and study the Word. Says Spurgeon, I have heard of a brother who trusts in the Lord and does not study. And I've also heard that his people do not trust him. In fact, I'm informed they wish him to go elsewhere with his inspired discourse. For they say that when he did study, his talk was poor enough. But now that he gives them that which comes first to his lips, it's altogether unbearable. If any man will preach as he should preach... His work will take more out of him than any other labor under heaven. You see what Spurgeon is saying, that pastors need to be serious about the Bible and not treat it as trivia and in a trivial way. So too for those who hear. So in the passage, beginning at verse 14, he does two things. He, he says, on the one hand, remind them, and then he says, also charge them. That's the pastor's work on behalf of the flock, remind and charge. Then on behalf of himself, verse 15, present yourself, Paul says. The pastor's work on behalf of himself. And so let's think of it this way in terms of Christian teachers. Christian teachers in the first place, and I've got three things about teachers. In the first place, Christian teachers need to to be reminded to keep the main thing, the main thing. Verse 14, right at the beginning, remind them of these things. Remind who? Remind them of what? Well, who? Well, since Paul here is concerned about the effects of their words on their hearers, It could ruin people. Paul has in mind people who are speaking up about the Bible. Teachers here. What teachers? The kind of teachers, verse 2, as we've said, who will be able to teach others also. Timothy is to pass along the teaching of the Apostle Paul to faithful people who will teach others. And it is these teachers he has in mind so they can remind others. So Timothy, you remind them as I remind you. Why must teachers be reminded? I mean, after all, they've obviously already heard it at least once, or Paul wouldn't have said, I want you to remind them. (laughs) We need to be reminded because we are all prone to forgetfulness. It's a very simple thing. We are all prone to forget and need constant reminding. Now, you know, in a very famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8, how the Lord called out his people for forgetting. The context is different, but notice this language in Deuteronomy 8. Take care, God says to them, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. 
Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Did you hear that time and again? Don't forget. Don't forget. You must remember. Well, we're all prone to forgetfulness, and so likewise of the things of the gospel. We're prone to forget to give thanks for the things of the earth, the good stuff that God has given to us. How much more do we need to remember the good things we have in Christ? Probably the things he's mentioned recently in verses 3 to 13, maybe in fact, especially verse 8, where Paul tells Timothy, back in 2 Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Timothy, you remember Jesus and remind them of these things, he says. What? Remember what? Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Don't don't forget to keep trusting him. Don't forget to keep teaching him. Let your ministry lead with him. Who he is is the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And remember also that he's the offspring of David. He's great David's greater son. He's God in the flesh. And he is the rightful heir to the throne of David's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And don't forget also this, Paul tells Timothy. Don't forget that he is risen from the dead, right? He died, but death couldn't hold him. He conquered the grave, and he always lives to intercede for you. Don't forget Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ reigning over all things. He is the hope of sinners. If the ministers forget, if the missionaries forget, if the Sunday school teachers forget, if the parents forget, what of those who hear? We've got to consciously return again and again and again. Because there are so many other things we're tempted to preach. There's so many other things ministers are tempted to preach. We're tempted to preach the law, thinking that it will be the law that will straighten up people when they go wayward. But it's the gospel that does that. We're tempted to preach... uh, Uh, the amusing stories of the Old Testament, just to tickle people's ear, without ever connecting them to the promised hope of the Messiah, which is the point of the Old Testament. Or we're tempted to just focus on people, tempted to tickle your ears uh, in the hopes that you'll pay attention and listen and go away amused and come back next week. We're tempted to preach ourselves as pastors. We're tempted to preach health and wealth and make false promises about life in this world. We're tempted to preach a social gospel instead of a gospel that saves you eternally. There are so many things, as some of you know very well, being preached throughout America, throughout the world, throughout Salem Springs, Sunday after Sunday, that do not time and again bring you back to Christ and Him crucified. 
And He is your only hope and that of the preacher. And so we've got to remind Christian teachers of these things so they don't, don't forget. We've got to do this so that we don't imagine speaking personally in the deceitfulness of my own heart that what you need is somehow me instead of Jesus. Because what you need is Jesus. And so imagine the deceitfulness of our own heart that uh, we're some kind of Messiah who can uh, carry the church along instead of knowing that there's but one Messiah and I am not him. And so we need to remember that what matters most is not my words, but it is God's word taken by God's spirit, applied to God's people, driving it home to our hearts. So Paul says, remind them of these things. Keep Jesus front and center. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's the first thing. And then he says, and, verse 14, and charge them. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. So second thing, teachers are not to quarrel about words. Now this is a solemn warning. You notice that language, charge them before God. Or in other words, put their duty before them and tell them they have an obligation to God and they are accountable to God for the fulfillment of that obligation. It brings to mind, for me, the caution of the Apostle James in his letter, James chapter 3, verse 1, when he, when he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God is our judge, and he will be the judge of these things, and more strictly of those who speak in his name. And so Paul says, charge them before God, very solemnly, and not to quarrel about words. Don't wrangle about words. Don't get, I think, caught up in, in debates about things that don't matter, things that sidetrack from the main thing. Paul here isn't introducing theological vagueness as if what, what he wants is that uh, uh, you just never say anything about anything in such a way that it either asserts the truth or contradicts what's false. Paul, Paul here isn't, isn't saying, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want you to clearly teach the truth about the gospel using words. <laughs> He's not saying, now don't instruct others, you know, uh, and, uh, and even if it seems like it's necessary, don't correct others, you know, when they're wrong. Because you don't want to argue about truth that matters. No, that's not what he's saying at all. I mean, for Paul, there definitely was a kind of teaching that was corrected in line with the gospel and a kind of teaching that was false and contrary to the gospel. And in some places, he puts it very sternly. You remember in Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of God, or grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary 
to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I mean, you understand why that language is so hard. If, if you preach a gospel that's not good news, that leaves people who hear it and believe it still under the curse of God, then, then the, 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 the proper retributive justice for the wickedness of what you've taught and inculcated into others is that you yourself be accursed, which of course you are if you really believe what you're preaching, which is no gospel. You need the gospel to not be cursed. You need Christ to be cursed for you on your behalf. But it's strong language. And Paul, whatever he's doing here in 2 Timothy, is not, you know, turning on its head the, the, the kind of strong language he will use elsewhere about preaching things that are true and reliable and trustworthy in accord with the gospel. What Paul is getting at here is something along the lines of useless debates and quarrels about words, about things like, as he'll say elsewhere in his letters, about genealogies or myths or insignificant nuances over things that don't matter, but which just tend to puff people up with pride because they think they're really in the know. And he says, I don't want you to quarrel. I don't want you to be quarrelsome. Don't fight over things non-essential. Don't get your mind all bent out of shape over narrow points that, that end up dividing people unnecessarily in the body of Christ. The, the, the point of teaching is to teach in love with the goal of building people up in the love of Christ, not tearing people apart. So aim to speak the truth in love for the building up of others. But, but these folks were aiming at something else. They quarrel about words. And why shouldn't they? End of verse 14. It does no good. On the one hand, it's unhelpful. It's of no value. It doesn't accomplish a good spiritual purpose. And we'll come back to this idea at verse 16 next week. But don't do it, Paul says, because it's a waste of time. And in fact, it has the opposite effect of the good that you ought to want to do. It only, he says, ruins the hearers. It brings destruction or ruin. Literally, the, the Greek word is catastrophe, and it's one of those words where when you hear it in Greek, you kind of know what it's getting at. It would be a catastrophe for people to sit under this kind of ministry week after week after week. And Paul is saying, We've got to care about the effect of our words on people. We've got to be aiming to see the Spirit of God take the Word of God and bear fruit for God, good fruit, among people. But these folks, they're quarreling and they're bring, bringing ruin and destruction and catastrophe. And quite honestly, I know almost everybody that comes with any regularity to Redeemer, and I honestly don't know if this is an issue at all in our fellowship. We have enjoyed, generally speaking, for a decade, a sweet kind of fellowship gathered around Christ, learning and growing. Uh, we are a place, and, and the elders would want you to know this, and if you, if you sit in on a new member interview, you'll be told this. We welcome questions. Well, we don't sit on high. We don't come down from Mount Sinai with pronouncements that are infallibly true because we're your elders, right? We're all gathered around the Bible 
seeking to learn, seeking to grow, and you are always most welcome to ask your questions and to wrestle with the things that we're teaching. Sometimes you'll hear things from this pulpit and you'll say, I just don't know if I've ever heard that before anywhere else. Or I don't know if I believe that or ever could believe that. I want you to know your questions are welcome. We're not talking about those things. But let me just take a shot in the dark if this applies to anybody. If you are a lightning rod for whining and complaining and arguing and pitting Christians against one another over things that don't matter, then you need to stop. That's what he's saying. So remind them to stick with the gospel, warn them, charge them not to nitpick. It'll be a waste of time, ruin people who listen. Splitting hairs and spoiling relationships is not what we're supposed to be about and how demoralizing for new Christians, young Christians, immature Christians to hear that kind of thing instead of being built up in the good news that brings joy. So... Christian teachers should keep the main thing, the main thing, not quarrel over words. And finally, Christian teachers must work hard to rightly handle God's word. Verse 15, do your best, he says, to present yourself to God as one approved. So the aim is to present yourself to God as one who is um, tested and approved as genuine and faithful. To present yourself to him. And Timothy should do that by derivation. All pastors and, and Christian teachers should do so. Um, and how, how do you do that? Well, in, in part, you know, elsewhere, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he puts it this way to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close watch, Timothy. Or as uh, I heard another pastor, and I couldn't resist quoting him, quoting Johnny Cash. I keep a close watch on this heart of I won't sing it for you. I, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. And he's singing there uh, about his relationship with his wife. He's, I guard my heart is what he's singing about. And, and Paul is saying in the same way in the ministry, guard your heart, Timothy. Keep a close watch on your heart. Because your heart is, is um, well, as the scripture says elsewhere, desperately wicked. Uh, and, and, and we're fools if we uh, don't believe that about ourselves. I, I heard uh, Gordon MacDonald some of you will know him. He's a pastor up in New England, a lot of years, decades. Wrote a book called Ordering Your Private World. Uh, and, and after writing that, I think it was after he wrote that book, Ordering Your Private World, his private world fell apart as he had an affair. And so a, a PCA pastor at our denomination named Joe Novison, who was young in the ministry and didn't want to fail dramatically in such a way, went and met with uh, Gordon McDonald um, and, and asked him, you know, what had happened, what had led to this. And, and Gordon McDonald said to Joe Novinson, uh, you're, you're a Calvinist, right? And he said, yes. He said, so you believe that you have enough wickedness in your own heart to destroy the world three times over? <laughs> and Joe was like, yes. And Gordon said, and I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that about me, right? So he wasn't cautious. 
The poor thing, we've got to, we've got to uh, do our best to present ourselves to God uh, in a way that uh, is approved of God and not where we would be ashamed before God. And he says, do your best at this. Make every effort, be diligent, be zealous, work hard at it. You might not be the best, and that's okay, but you can seek to do your best, and that's what we ought to do. I and mean, this is the kind of thing that parents sometimes uh, have in conversation with their kids, you know, in discussions about things like school. Did, did you do your best? Not, you know, are you a genius and it comes easy to you? And so we all, no, not that. Uh, not, not really so much interested in that. Uh, not, did you do better than everybody else, you know? Where are you in the, are you at the top of the class? No, no. Just, I mean, did you try hard? Did you work at it? That's what we'd like to see. Well, here, this is what Paul is saying. Do your best. And the approval you're to seek, notice, is the approval of God. In other words, certainly not the approval of man. It's not men and women we should be seeking approval from, but seeking it from God himself. And there, there are many a young minister who has gone astray because they got into a congregation and what became most important to them is Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so instead of God himself. And so Paul says here, you know, uh, seek the approval of God and not man. And Paul doesn't mean, so try to be unlikable so nobody will like you. <laughs> you know, nobody likes to be unliked. I don't, I don't like to be unliked. I don't think you unlike me, do you? Just go on my Facebook and like my... No, I'm kidding. But, but we are going to give an account for every word that we speak from this pulpit. And we're going to give that account to God. And so we are to aim, end of verse 15, to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Somebody who doesn't, uh, as they contemplate one day appearing before God, has the sense that they just really need to hide in shame over how lightly or trivially or improperly they handled God's word. They are, to be, they are to work hard. They are to be a worker. A pastor is to work hard in his study. And they are to handle the scripture properly. And it takes work to do that. It takes prayer. And it takes faith. It takes help. It takes study. It takes work. And there is a right way, he's saying, to handle the Bible. And there is a wrong way to handle the Bible. And the unashamed workers... One who is not just not trying to impress people, but trying to instruct people uh, by rightly handling or accurately handling the word. And the word he uses here to rightly, your, your King James will say rightly divide the word, because the word he uses is a word that means to cut straight. Um, and the idea being you, you don't cut outside the lines, you don't zigzag back and forth, you're not all over the place. Uh, but But he doesn't mean that by that, he doesn't mean you are to divide the word or cut it up and separate one thing from another when they belong together as, uh, well, 
some of our dispensationalist friends do and ask me about that afterwards. But, but we are to interpret each part as it was meant to be understood. One of the best ways to do this is to approach the Bible and ask, what is the authorial intent of this passage? What did the author of the passage intend? What did Paul intend and what did the Holy Spirit intend by giving us this passage right here? Why did he give it? Right? And so then to read the Bible, not to read into it what you want to see, but to read out of it what is there. So that you don't make the Bible into a wax nose, where every time you come to it, you reach out and you tweak it and twist it and make it look however you want it to look. That's not what we're to do. God's Word conforms its truth and it conforms to reality and it tells things like they are and we are to aim to tell things like they are. We've all heard passages, um, let me, a brief illustration, and a very simple, basic one. Some of you have heard it a hundred times. We've all heard passages bent completely out of shape, made to say things they, they never said, and probably one of the most quitted, misquoted passages in all of Scripture is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you will find that on posters, in gymnasiums, by heroes in athletic competition, you know, working out and inspiring you because they're Christians and you can do it too, as if, as if the Bible was teaching that you, because you're a Christian, can shoot more accurately from the foul line than if you're not, if Christ strengthens you, or you can run faster, or jump higher, or beat your competition, or as if it's promising that you can leap tall buildings with a single bound, or that any one of you could be Superman, or Spider-Man, or Aquaman, or the Bionic Man, and that is not what Paul is promising in that passage. Right? What is Paul promising in that passage? Well, Paul comes to that conclusion in a context in which he has just said, right, that, 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 I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound and in any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? That is a promise you can depend upon. In fact, your only hope of enduring difficult circumstances with contentment is by depending upon Christ to strengthen you. I mean, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it without him, and you weren't meant to. So Paul is talking about being content, whether we're hungry or full, plenty or little, prison or free. God will get us through all the various seasons of providence that God himself brings as we trust in and rely upon Christ who strengthens us. Well, it's a simple illustration. Once you've heard it once, I hope it just sticks. I trust it for many of you it already has. But this is not what we're to do with the Bible, right? We don't need a bunch of innovators with the Bible. We don't need your opinions, frankly. Uh, I, I marvel at churches where pastors just spout their own opinions for 20, 30 minutes, and then people come back the next week. What do you care about my opinions? You know, If that's all we have up here, let's just go play golf on Sunday. But that's not what we have up here, right? So we need people who will cut to the chase and be plain spoken about the plain things of Scripture, major on the major, minor on the minors. We don't need a ministry that's built on smart, witty people who are always trying to impress you with their superior knowledge 
and experience and rhetoric and creativity and originality. You know, stick with what you've been given. That's what we're to do. Because faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. It is not my word, it is God's word that can pierce your heart, that can bring you to faith, that can build you up in the love of Christ. So, when we look at those who are teaching in the congregation, we need to ask, do they embrace and have they been embraced by the gospel? And do they keep the main thing the main thing? Do they lead with Christ and Him crucified? Are they not quarreling about words? It would be catastrophic if they did. And are they, are they working at it? Are they aiming to do their best at handling the Bible responsibly? These will be good questions for you as you contemplate someday in the next half year voting for ruling elders and deacons. You are always invited to ask your questions about the ministry of this church. You should never stop doing so. You should never, we, we urge you to open the Bible and ask, is what he is saying, is that what the Bible is actually saying we urge you to do so, and that is why the Bible also says we need this table, to which I will invite you in a moment, so that we don't forget what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose in accordance with the Scripture. It is at the end of the day, your hope and every Christian teacher's hope and this pastor's hope that it is his perfect conformity to that scripture, which is our hope. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Father, grant us to put our hopes not in ourselves, not in any man, but in the God-man Jesus who died and rose for our salvation. Thank you. Thank you that you're the chief shepherd of your sheep, that you are the head and king of the church. Receive all the glory and richly bless us all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.